Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am delighted to be here today. My name is Camille Foster. I do stuff, if you think. And it's great to be back in the studio. We're back in the studio after our exceptionally successful live show at the Comedy Cellar. Um, and by our, I'm referring, of course, to Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, who is in the building. Uh, Michael Moynihan, who does stuff over at Vice, um, who is not here because he's at Vice's holiday party tonight. It's literally what he's doing. He's at the holiday party. Well, that's going to be really fun. Yeah, the, very exciting. <laughs> Age of Me Too, the Vice party, <laughs> like <laughs> compared to 10 years ago. <laughs> Holy cow. I don't know why you would think it's less fun to respect women. Uh, you exactly, monster. Exactly right. Damn right. Um, and Anthony Fisher, who is the politics editor at Insider, also in the building. Gentlemen, it's wonderful to be with you again. Thank you. I had the decency to leave my holiday party early. It was probably less fun you, than uh, the holiday got, party advice. So you masked no great it sacrifice. a lot better than, uh, than Moynihan usually does when he, when he uh, posts games here. <laughs> <laughs> I did have the bacon-wrapped cannolis, which, uh, you know, I regret nothing. Yeah, yeah, you should. Uh, you should know. I'm just happy here that we don't have to actually flag a, a waitress in the middle of our... Um, podcast not that that was, uh, was wrong no it's fine it's fine. It fine. fine just that there were moments when i was thirsty no it was a really great performance it was a really great crowd um there, i was never nervous going into it i knew that it would be enormously successful but i was delighted to meet all of the fantastic people who showed up and who bought us drinks i got plenty drunk who came from vancouver uh, who, who came, came from, from sweden, sweden denver sweden. did that turn out to be true it, it absolutely was true okay. absolutely I there, was a, uh, yeah. there was a carding that happened yeah, little, yeah. Uh, I, I demanded credentials Fast control. and we've had follow-ups okay mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah that was a great night thanks to everybody who came out we'll do something like that again at some point yeah that's committal <laughs> but in addition to ourselves we also have a guest with us uh, and I'm delighted to have this guest. We've actually, I wanted to have him on for some time because he wrote some very good things uh, in The Atlantic. Uh, I recently had an opportunity to, re- to read his book. His name is Yasha Monk. He hosts a Good Fight podcast uh, over at Slate. Or at least I guess Slate is the podcast network that he's with. Um, in addition to that, he recently wrote a book called The People vs. Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And uh, in terms of those pieces that I mentioned a moment ago, you wrote uh, Americans Strongly Dislike PC Culture, the title of one of your pieces at The Atlantic. Uh, and the other, which was a few days before that, was What an Audacious Hoax Reveals About Academia, two articles that we definitely talked about here uh, at the time they were written. Um, and uh, as, I'm, as I'm thinking back on them, I'm remembering the, the scandal that was ignited by both of them. Um, but I'm delighted that you're here, hopefully, to ignite some additional scandal. <laughs> I, I always try to ignite as many scandals as I can. Thank it's you. Good. Is the Slate Podcast Network, are they uh, uh, subject to the strike that's happening? You know, there's a Slate strike now. I wasn't aware of yeah. that. All these uh, places I'm, are unionizing. And New York Magazine, I think, just unionized. Yeah, over the uh, over the uh, dead body of Jonathan Chait. <laughs> they're unionizing against Jonathan Chait, aren't they? Um, yeah, I have no idea what's going on at Slate. Yeah. But if these people are, but if, if they're, if they're not working, who's going to bring us the truth? Won't democracy <laughs> die in the darkness? Well, isn't that isn't that how that works? That's a different publication. I mean, these these brave people well, they were putting their lives the on the line. Place for a while there, right? Is that right? Washington Post and Slate were the same company. They had the same owner for a while. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Huh. 
uh, that came into play with the Dave Weigel contention, which we've forgotten because it's 45 uh, dumb outrage cycles. But I believe the Washington Post hired Weigel away from Slate and then was shocked uh, to discover that Weigel had opinions. No, he went from to Bloomberg first. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he went to like 75 different places, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. they were in the same like corporate building and yeah. they didn't like share enough intel. I'm sure I'm making that all up. Yeah, that's why, fine. Why, why those opinions have never been public knowledge. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Especially about prog rock. Former uh, We the Fifth guest. That's right. Mm-hmm. Who isn't? Plenty of people. <laughs> lots, but I've, lots I've, and lots I have of a point of coming on here so that you wouldn't slag me off later, but apparently that's no protection. No, 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 I'm going to no, I mean, straight I'm, out. I, slag, I, mean, I will slag Fisher while he's in the room. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all of that's us, that's yeah. respect. It's not, you know, while they're out of it. I don't know how respectful uh, it is. No. Sometimes <laughs> it is. Yeah. I, I think everyone, everyone knows the rules. Um, <laughs> and generally speaking, I mean, these are public people. You know, I, often, sometimes I will disparage like family members who are not, in fact, public people and name them and give out their addresses and all that stuff. But generally speaking, these are public people. And when we disparage them, will we make fun of their appearance? Yes. Will we talk (laughs) about their sexual orientation? Probably not, but it's not totally out of bounds. Apparently that's okay. You can do it and get away with it. If you, if you got the right uh, politics, maybe. Politics is the, is the word, right? Yes. Um, It's a joke. It's a little bit of a joke. There was a wink there. Um, I mean, I think we've got a, a bunch of stuff to get to. I mean, Yasha, I, Desperately want to talk about um, your book, which I've been reading over the past couple of days, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are parts of it I really enjoyed. I, and I, it's funny. You sound been, surprised. Well, no, because there have been, there've been a number of books written in recent months mm-hmm. uh, about the rise of tyranny and the end of democracy. To the extent I was not certain that I would like it, having previously read your work in The Atlantic before coming to your book and really liking that. It's probably because I find that most people who are writing about this stuff tend to be like really hyperbolic Mm. and over the top and somewhat sensationalist. Mm. And I've said the same thing three times means I really, I really mean it. So (laughs) I think your book, on the other hand, is a lot more measured and a lot more thoughtful. And the parts that I really appreciated were your attempts to define your terms, Mm. which is something that astonishingly to me anyways, many folks who come to these subjects don't don't bother. Um, There is a presumption that we all know what Mm. democracy means and that when we talk about democracy, we all all mean the same thing, but that's most certainly not the case. Uh, And I I thought that that portion of the treatment was great. Um, There are certainly some things that I've had questions about and Mm. challenges to, and yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to talk about that. And I think it's interesting because the topics that you've covered recently and that you cover in the book there are a lot of tendrils between that mm-hmm. and the major news stories of the moment. Maybe you could start off by giving us a bit of context, introducing the concepts that you talk about in the book. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, because you're talking about concepts and definitions, I'll sort of start with that. I mean, I think that it really helps to remember what our political system is actually supposed to do or what it's supposed to achieve. And in my mind, it's a liberal democracy and liberal in that sense doesn't have anything to do with liberal conservative. It's not, you know... Bush versus Obama or anything like that, um, uh, the liberal uh, aspect of our political system is that we want to live in a country in which each of us gets to decide what to say or not say, which God to worship or whether to worship it all, what kind of uh, private life to lead and so on and so forth. And I think in order to have that, we need to have individual rights, um, which apply to everybody, including uh, various groups and minorities that might be unpopular. Um, and we need to have a rule of law, 
because if you have a president or a prime minister who can chuck you in jail because he doesn't like what you say, then you don't really have those individual freedoms, right? Um, now, the other element of our political system, obviously, is the democratic part. Um, and that, to me, means that we don't have uh, a monarch, an uh, army general, a priest, uh, or a dictator telling us what to do, but that we have some form of mechanism for deciding together about what kind of laws we want and what kind of rules uh, we want to be governed by. Now, I think those two things, liberalism and democracy, the sort of individual freedom bit and the collective self-determination bit, um, they go together in a certain sense, which is to say that if you only have one, the other one is probably going to suffer pretty quickly as well. Uh, but there's also an important way in which we don't go together, which is to say that you can easily start seeing one of them slip and then the other one will tend to slip as well. So it's not nearly as stable an amalgam as political scientists have fought for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so the basic argument in the book is that for a long time we've been living in systems which I would call uh, rights without democracy or undemocratic liberalism, which is an ugly term, and I'm still waiting for somebody to give me a better one. So um, I think it works pretty well. Keep drinking, guys. And, <laughs> um, uh, and, and that's basically a political system in which we have... Uh, pretty good protection of individual rights and the rule of law. Not perfect, but, you know, by and large, people actually get to go about the lives they choose and so on and so forth. Um, but we don't have great mechanisms for actually translating what people want into public policy. Um, and now I think with the rise of populism around the world, with figures like Donald Trump in the United States, but also with people uh, like Recep Erdogan in Turkey or Viktor Orban in Hungary or Narendra Modi in India, um, you get the, the rise of something that are I would call a form of illiberal democracy or democracy without rights. Um, the set of people who basically say, look, the only real reason why we have problems today is that uh, the uh, elite is corrupt and self-serving, that they care more about various outsiders and so on than they do about good, ordinary, real people like you and me. And so all you need to do is to let me rule, uh, do my thing. I'm going to return power to the people. I'm going to fix everything. Um, but but they claim that only they are legitimate, right? But anybody who disagrees with them is by virtue of that illegitimate and can be ignored. And that allows them to start shutting down media. It allows them to start um, uh, taking control of independent institutions like law enforcement agencies and the courts. Um, and so over time, they not ju don't just victimize various minorities. They also take on so much power that it becomes harder and harder to actually displace them by democratic means. And in the end, you can get to a place uh, which we've gotten to now, I would argue, certainly in Venezuela and Russia, um, but, but perhaps in a country like Hungary as well, where somebody who was originally democratically elected has started uh, uh, destroying the liberal element of the political system so much, taking on so much power, making it so hard for anybody to organize against them, that you start losing the democratic element as well. I think in Hungary at this point, it's basically impossible to displace a democratically elected prime minister through democratic means. And one way of putting that is that the country has gone from being a relatively liberal democracy to being an illiberal democracy to being essentially a dictatorship that pretends to be a democracy. If uh, there's there's an assumed, not necessarily balance, but there's you have uh, two hands and one is mm -hmm. the democratic hand, one is the liberalism hand. Uh, would you say that the populism uh, thing that we're seeing right now, including in Hungary, um, it's, it seems like a rush of democracy. It's certainly sold as a rush of this. We are going to uh, give you the kind of democratic correction to what these elites and their, you know, transnational liberalism have brought us. Mm -hmm. They are out of touch. They mm -hmm. do. They lack 
sovereignty and legitimacy and this kind of stuff. So are we getting to the undemocratic place by democratic means? Yeah, so this is exactly one of the reasons why I called my book The People Versus Democracy, which seems really paradoxical, but that's precisely because of that paradox you're pointing out. So I think a lot of the time, um, these people are putting uh, something democratic into place. They are allowing the majority to rule on things which it didn't before uh, and which often are quite popular. So one example of this was the referendum you had a few years ago in Switzerland, uh, which banned the building of minarets. So 58% of the Swiss population said, we're not no longer going to be allowed to build uh, minarets. The, the towers from which we call to prayer normally happens that are adjacent to mosques. And so as a result, the Swiss constitution reads, uh, there's freedom of religion in Switzerland, full stop. The building of minarets is forbidden, full stop, which doesn't make much sense. Um, I think that is, uh, you know, a lot of people have called it undemocratic in response. And I think that's a conceptual confusion. It is democratic in the sense that a majority of people uh, want that. Um, what it is, is illiberal, right? But once you start putting all of these illiberal elements into place, you start losing the democracy as well. Because the strongman who uh, uh, runs roughshod over all of the institutions that try to limit what he can do and ends up with all of the power in his own hands is not going to leave office when people's will changes and they no longer like him. Can I ask a question about liberal democracy? Were I to begin a conversation with someone about the kind of government we have in the United mm -hmm. States, I would call it a constitutional republic. Yeah. Um, or I would say that we have a republic, not a democracy, because I think that those are fundamentally different things. Is there a reason why you opted to use liberal democracy versus one of those other conventions? Yeah, so I think that the notion of a constitutional republic tries to get at very much the same thing. Um, when you look at a whole bunch of countries, and I think one of the things that distinguishes my book from some of the other books in that genre is that it's uh, obviously about the United States in certain ways, but it's not just about the United States. It tries to understand what's going on around the world yeah. in that kind of perspective. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, uh, the United Kingdom is not a constitutional republic because it has a monarch, mm -hmm. right? It's a constitutional monarchy. And so the, the term constitutional republic doesn't travel that well uh, beyond the United States for those somewhat contingent reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that that whether you call the United States a constitutional republic or whether you call it a liberal democracy, you're sort of getting at the same thing. What you described to me here seems to be a bit tonally different than the the uh, excerpt, I guess, or or summary that was published over the Atlantic, mm -hmm. which seemed to be more, to my ears at least, um, kind of sounding the alarm about how democracy and there's a there's a rise of anti-democratic, intellectual anti-democratic sentiment. Um, I, when we were just talking here, I felt like we were you were walking perilously close to the Camille Foster uh, <laughs> line of being I, I don't know what that is, but I, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't want to do that. Uh, being, being super suspicious of democracy, like democracy is a bit of the problem in the and uh, you I, I, no, step I, on the yeah. face in, in any uh, I, I think moment that there's here. I think there's some strains of Camilleism in there. The notion of democratic <laughs> excess is certainly not something that's alien to to, no, yeah. to the writing that you've been doing on this topic. Well, well, I think I mean people have always. What's interesting about reception to my book, I mean, there's various uh, weird pathologies in, my, in reception to my book, as every author believes. Um, but, but what's interesting is that sort of half of the criticisms have come from, oh, you're secretly on the side of illiberal democracy. And half the criticisms have come sort of in the form of, oh, you're secretly on the side of undemocratic liberalism. <laughs> um, uh, so, so the Atlantic uh, uh, excerpt of my book was basically based on one of the chapters in the book, which is primarily about undemocratic liberalism. It's primarily about the problem that we had um, pre-existing to somebody like Trump, in which I think 
Um, you know, a lot of our legislators are relatively out of touch uh, with ordinary people. They've uh, often gone to very good colleges, spent their formative years in, uh, you know, New York City and Washington, D.C. and other places. They um, spend a tremendous portion of their time talking, uh, trying to raise funds. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I don't think that they have a good sense of what people actually want. Um, and then you have a rise of a lot of uh, technocratic and expert-led institutions, um, a lot of which do good work in all kinds of ways, but which leave people with the right sense that, you know what, the most important stuff in this country is decided by the Supreme Court and the Fed and uh, the EPA and the... Uh, you know, all of these other institutions, and then you have a WTO and uh, the UN, and then you have international trade treaties, and what's actually left for us to have a say in, right? So that's a piece that was published in the in the Atlantic, and that's, I think, one of the dangers, because I generally think that both of these things are real values. We want to have democracy. We want to have some form of collective self-rule. That is one of the deep promises of our political system, and I don't think we can take that away. I think that that's something that I'm deeply committed to. Now, I also think that the inverse is a very big danger as well. If you have somebody who says, hey, I speak for the people, and perhaps they don't, perhaps they do, perhaps they actually have 55% of support, 60% of support, but that allows me to tell anybody I dislike to shut up, to to shutter news outlets that I don't like, to close down a university, as just happened in, in Budapest, or Central European University, which is a very serious institution of higher learning, which is being chased out of a country. Um, you know, I'm going to put all of my loyalists into the courts and they'll do whatever I want, I think that's very dangerous as well. And so I don't want to jump one way or the other. I don't want to say, you know what, if push comes to shove, I think we should have undemocratic liberalism or we should have a liberal democracy. Um, I think in the end, either of these systems is only going to be stable and only going to be worth living in if we have both. But in order to have both, you have to convince people to vote for the liberal element of this. If a majority of people keep saying, you know what, I think we should go and gang up on that set of people over there, or I think that my side is so right and the other side of the political system is so wrong that if we come to power, we should just run those guys out of town and never listen to them at all, um, then I think uh, uh, we're going to end up in, in a really terrible situation. You know, maybe, maybe it makes sense to start with sort of the international scene mm-hmm. um, because there's been a great deal that's happened in recent weeks. We've had the riots in France. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a recent terror attack in France. In Germany, Merkel will be exiting the stage pretty soon. And she's probably the most significant person on the political landscape in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing um, is, and I suppose this is actually the fourth thing, um, is the Brexit, which may uh, unseat another prime minister. We'll have to see what ends up happening eventually. Um, but this is still sort of roiling Europe as well. All of these things are happening against the backdrop of, I suspect you would describe it as a surge of populist instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, we're talking about right sort of nationalist populism, but there's also some populism from the left. Could you paint a picture of what you see happening in these in this circumstance? Um, sort of generally in Europe? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, so so, so looking, uh, let's look globally for a second about the question of left-wing populism and right-wing populism. Um, so I'm actually about to publish a study with co- colleague Jordan Kyle, um, which looks at how much damage populists tend to uh, do to democratic uh, institutions. And the good news is that in a slight majority of cases, uh, democracies manage to throw off populists, right? So it's not like a populist is elected and you're definitely going to lose your democracy. Everything is doomed, foretold, for sure. 
um, that it is 14 times more likely that a democracy experiences democratic backsliding under a uh, populist government than under a non-populist government. So we see that populists really do uh, destroy democracy in a good number of cases. Um, and what's striking is that when you distinguish between left-wing populists and right-wing populists, they have about the same impact. So it's not as though one of those tends to be more dangerous than the other in terms of its impact on democratic institutions. Right-wing populists may be worse in various other ways, but in terms of a destruction of democratic institutions, they're about equally bad. Now, you can see that in a place like Venezuela, right, which, by the way, was celebrated by a lot of writers who've weirdly gone very quiet about uh -huh. it for the last few years. Yeah, a lot of folks on the um, left here in the States were, were very excited. We're very excited about Venezuela. And, you know, I mean, they have thoroughly destroyed democracy there mm -hmm. exactly the way that I was talking about earlier. So you can see that happening. Now, I think in Europe, for various reasons, right-wing populism tends to be a much bigger threat than left-wing populism. Um, it's just when you look at the kinds of people who actually get into government, um, on most of the continent, it is right-wing populists rather than left-wing populists. And so that's what's happened in a whole swath of Central Europe. So you can now, uh, if you remember Winston Churchill's famous speech about the Iron Curtain, from Staten in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain is descending across Europe. You can drive along with a whole long stretch of road and never leave a country that's ruled by right-wing populists. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, is, is that and, a function of them just being more successful because they tend to also be right-wing populists tend to be nationalists? They're tapping into that tribal sentiment, that mm -hmm. national identity, and that is just more effective than what left-wing populists do, which, and I, I think you described this pretty well in your book, left-wing populists tend to run away from the sense of national identity. They'll, they'll oftentimes try to deconstruct it or demonize the the sense of being a part of the 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 nation as a whole. The, yeah, the, the so, nation might be congen congenitally guilty of something, right, for right. example. Um, well, so I think there's two things going on. I mean, one is just that, um, you know, if you if the main worry in a political system uh, is about the economy, left-wing populists tend to do a little bit better. If the main worry is about immigration and cultural change, then right-wing populists tend to do better. And so what you see is that in North and uh, Central uh, Europe, um, the economy is not going great. People aren't like super happy with it, um, but it's going relatively well. I mean, people have jobs and so on and so forth. And so that makes it easier for right-wing populists to rise. Whereas in uh, Southern Europe, in places like Greece, and certainly in parts of Latin America, mm. uh, the economy is so bad that left-wing populists have more of a fighting chance. But, 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 I, I, but I agree with you that there's a response that a lot of people on the left give to the rise of right-wing populism. Uh, Chantal Mouffe is the most famous person who said that, but there's tons of others, um, who basically say, look, the way to fight right-wing populism is with left-wing populism. That's how we're going to get against it. And right. I just don't think that that works most of the time, because in the end, if you give people a choice between hating the immigrant over there and hating an abstract corporation, they're going to go with hating the immigrant because they can see the immigrant. It's, 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 it's easier to be scared of an immigrant than of um, uh, this abstract entity that's, that's some kind of multinational corporation. Talk a little bit, if you can, about um, the, for lack of a better word, the third way out of all of this right now, as uh, at least as a, a practical application, which would appear to be uh, Macronism, right? Like, mm. I'm, we, we will repudiate the nasty right-wing populists who nevertheless have a pretty left-wing economic agenda in the national front, and we'll coalesce around this person who doesn't really exist as a political uh, mm. persona until now. Let's just create a political party around him. He's going to go through, and it's the 
you know, a lot of people in, in the United States were like, okay, this is this is the model for us going forward. The kind of anti-populist uh, suave and uh, debonair guy um, who's now like the least popular politician in, in, in Europe and shit's burning in, in, uh, in, in Paris. Um, either him in, in particular or do you perceive there to be any creative thinking mm. about how to get out of the populist rut left or right or or, you know, right populist versus the kind of uh, elite uber class who have been sidelined and who are busy licking their wounds, you know, in this country, fantasizing about uh, a unity ticket of Joe Biden and Mitt Romney or whatever the goddamn hell they're talking about. Yeah, I don't know who actually fantasizes about it. I know there was an article that was like, you know, I mean, it's like one person. I mean, but this like, is like the people who think Hillary's going to run it. She's not going to run. And if she does, everybody's going to ignore it. Like, you know, this is not a real threat. But um, if she ran, they would not ignore it. Well, everybody would cover it, but nobody would vote for her. And she, I mean, you know. uh, I don't know. She, really? She got really? three million more votes than Donald Trump. And there's a lot of pissed off people I'm, that are still. I'm with Monk. No you don't chance. think nobody's going to vote for her? All right, this is silly. It's silly. She'll get like 5%. <clears throat> I mean, it's like, I, I, it's not. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, different topic. Um, well, look, Macron. Um, uh, uh, so, so, so there's a couple of specific things about France, which make this a little difficult, right? So, I mean, I think part of what you clearly have to do in France is to deal with some of the lack of reforms that the country has had over the last uh, decades, which leads to very high youth unemployment and all kinds of other problems. And so, you know, Macron is trying to do that. And so has every, every other president, president for the last 20 yeah. years. Mm -hmm. And Macron is failing. And so has the last president. Um, uh, Macron is incredibly unpopular. But a year and a half in, so was Hollande and so was Sarkozy and so was Chirac. Um, so um, in a weird way, uh, Macron has actually turned out not to be so different from the previous presidents. Um, um, you know, I, look, I, I think there's some creative thinking about what to do in this space, but not nearly enough. Um, and if we're sort of criticizing the genre of books um, uh, in this vein, I think we're not doing enough thinking about, okay, so what do we actually respond with? Um, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people in here, uh, and you've seen that with, uh, you know, all of the people who've crawled out of the woodwork just being giddy with excitement that Macron is finished in France and that the yellow vests are coming out. And you saw that, you know, from the far left to the far right, uh, to everybody else. Um, and, and that's easy to do. And I think clearly in certain ways, Macron's project isn't succeeding. Um, but, but I don't think we should rejoice about that. We should actually hope that we can find a better way out. Now, to me, um, you know, a, a key part of this uh, on the economy is to defend um, the idea of capitalism, is to defend the idea even of free trade. Um, but also to show that the state can do much, much more to shape those things in such a way that ordinary citizens get something out of it um, and that the elites have to play by the same rules. And I think that Macron has been relatively good at uh, trying to get through some of the reforms that France desperately needs. He's been pretty bad at showing to people uh, that he's going to make sure that everybody plays by the same rules. And so some of his tax reforms, um, you know, uh, hugely benefit the top 1%. Um, and uh, moderately harm uh, a lot of the middle of the population. And I don't think that's the right way of doing that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as you say that, I think you you start to get at some of the things where I found myself in pretty sharp disagreement. Mm -hmm. I suppose most of this is on the sort of prescription side. You, you talked about sort of domesticating nationalism is perhaps the thing that I was most like, okay, maybe. Mm -hmm. And I think domesticating nationalism is the sentiment that nationalism is something that is almost certainly not going to go away. Mm -hmm. And we need to speak to some of those themes if we hope to persuade people 
um, and keep them away from the more dangerous strains of populism on the left and the right. But in addition to that, I think you talked a lot about sort of inequality and relatedly there's globalization there. Imagining inequality as a problem, I think Barack Obama called it like the most significant threat or something like mm-hmm. that, the most, uh, the most substantial challenge that we face. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I think there's, there's, there's certainly a popular perception about inequality, but is, in, is economic inequality in all instances really a good gauge of well-being? So, and, and if it's not, what should people be looking at? I get that huh. folks pay attention to inequality. Right, right, I, I but, understand that it works at the polls, um, but it doesn't seem to me that that's really what we care about. If, if 20% of the stock market was wiped out tomorrow, inequality would shrink dramatically, right, right. but we wouldn't be better off. Yeah, so I mean, so, so I actually I don't think that I I uh, I have a subtly different argument. Now okay. I think inequality comes in, but I think it comes in much further down the argumentative chain than most people think. So a okay. lot of people say, look, the problem with global capitalism is that it makes inequality rise, and so that's why everybody is unhappy and upset, right? Uh, and there's sort of two ways in which I think that's wrong. The first is that at a global scale, uh, the last twenty years have not seen rising inequality. Right. So we have this really bizarre phenomenon, which is a sort of genuine paradox, um, that uh, inequality in virtually every country in the world has risen over the last 20 years. But because some countries that used to be poor have grown so quickly and the richer countries have stagnated, if you look at the global scale, inequality has actually shrunk quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So insofar as people's frame of reference is within their own country, the right to say, hey, I think it's getting more and more unequal. Um, and and most people have that frame of reference, so most people have the impression that inequality is rising. But when you actually look at all human beings, inequality is going down. So so we should celebrate that. Right. Um, the the second thing is uh, going at you know, do people actually care about inequality? That's sort of what you're asking about. And I'm not so sure. Right. I mean, if you had over the last thirty years had absolute economic stagnation, nobody making a dollar more than we did thirty years ago. Um, I don't think people would have been very happy, even though obviously it would have meant that inequality didn't increase. Now, I think, on the other hand, if you'd had, you know, the living standards of a top 10% increasing tenfold mm-hmm. and everybody else's living standards increasing threefold, we would now be even more unequal than we are, but people would be pretty happy. I mean, right. Most people would have tripled their living standard in the last 30 years. I mean, we would have said, all right, some other people are even richer. I, I don't care. Right. I'm doing great, right? Now, I think where it does come in is that in... Uh, developed economies at the sort of uh, production frontier, um, we have relatively slow economic growth and we're likely to continue to have relatively slow economic growth. And so if you want to make sure that average citizens actually see real improvements in their living standards, I think one of the things you have to do is to have reasonable economic distribution where a lot of the gains do go to the bulk of citizens. Now, you also need economic growth. You need both of those things. Um, but I think if you have a really unequal distribution of the relatively moderate gains that people in the United States have seen for the last 20 years and are going to continue to see for the next 20 years, most likely, then people are going to get pissed off, not because of inequality itself, but because they're not seeing any improvements in how well they're doing. Without, without challenging the notion that that might piss people off, if we have a more redistributive economic system, don't we also run the risk, however of diminishing the incentives that actually get us the productivity gains. And in a circumstance where we expect lower growth mm. over the long run, like 
diminishing the gains that we might actually realize is a pretty significant deal. Um, and that's always been one of the challenges that I've had with mm -hmm. things uh, like the, um, the living wage, for example, uh, guaranteed minimum income sort, sort of policies. The thing that doesn't ever seem to get sufficient consideration is both the implications for people who are actually doing the creating of stuff that right, gets right. us greater productivity, which is the way we achieve greater wealth, but also the other side of it, which is something that you know, we've talked about when we've done things like welfare reform in this country, the actual incentives created for individuals. Mm -hmm. If things are getting tighter, for example, and cities are becoming more expensive, perhaps as a consequence of whatever pressures, maybe it's policy or whatever, what have you, maybe you should move someplace else. And perhaps moving someplace else is the very best thing that you could do in order to improve your own circumstance and to make the economy more dynamic. Mm we actually could create a more stagnant circumstance for ourselves by trying to address this imagined problem that we, that people may in fact get animated about. Um, but that might not be the sort of best course in terms of actually uh, achieving a better and constantly improving standard of living. Yeah, look, I mean, I think economic growth is incredibly important. I think this whole idea of a post-growth society that some people have is a complete fantasy in part because what happens when societies don't grow is that people become yeah, yeah. much nastier politically. I, mean, I, expect, I expect degradation under a circumstance. Yeah, like absolutely. Things get worse. So, they don't stay static. Exactly. So so, um, uh, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I, I'm a little, I, I think there's parts of the, uh, there, there's certainly ways in which our current policies impede growth in a way that's really problematic. You You mentioned, housing prices. Um, and perhaps the good solution as well, if some people just have to move out of New York, you know, that's great. I, I, I would put it another way. I think that one of the huge reasons why housing prices have shot through the roof in the last decades um, is that we have very bad regulation that makes it really hard uh, to build more housing. I mean, true. in a lot of California, you cannot build more than a one-story house. Yeah, That is ridiculous. Yeah. And it means that even if you have a, you're a young guy, you have a decent job, you pay a huge share of your income on housing. Um, and if uh, you're not, if you're living somewhere in rural America and there's not great opportunities and you want to move to San Francisco, you want to move to New York and make a go of something where you can make more money, where you can be more productive, you can't actually afford to move there, right? So that's one instance in which I think um, getting rid of some of the regulation we currently have would absolutely be conducive to growth. Now, Although even what, moving away might actually induce people to change those bad policies, probably yeah. more than New York, than New York and what's Chicago have, to the have, had a, have had a U-Haul situation for a long time here. It hasn't really. Well, people uh, are still coming. New York is still growing. Uh, New York as a state uh, is is a is is a net. Ah, uh, okay, sure. Right. What I'm not sure I quite buy is the incentive argument in itself, right? So what I don't buy is hmm. that. Um, uh, somebody who, you know, is an entrepreneur who who really wants to, um, you know, create a billion dollar company or somebody who's really hard driving, you know, they're, they're a lawyer at a top firm, they want to be, become partner and so on, that they're significantly going to change their behavior because their top income rate goes from 38 to 42%. Or, I, 70, I, I or just, 75%. Well, well, seventy-five percent would be quite different, but uh -huh. I don't. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not advocating any policies. That, yeah, yeah. That, that, that but no, I'm, to... I only say that because we've had um, income tax rates that were as high as seventy-five. Yeah, and I think, and I think at that point it does yeah. probably create uh, perverse incentives, and, yeah. and and that's a problem. But I just don't think that you know uh, the kinds of things we need to do 
to there's a lot of things on which we I think we'll have a little bit more social spending but actually would be win-wins. And mm-hmm. one of one of those examples is that Sweden has a higher entrepreneurship rate than the United States. And part of the reason is that if you're in your 20s, um, you can strike out and try and be an entrepreneur um, and you have health insurance, you have the very basics of your life taken care of. And so if you fail, it's not a catastrophe in the kind of way that it can be in the United States. So I think, you know, it's really a question, you need to dig down into particular policies um, and I suspect that on a lot of those, we might actually end up agreeing. And I think that's more helpful than sort of the abstract level of, um, you know, do we want more or less equality? Do we want, um, uh, you know, should we be worried about the incentives and so on? Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, you mentioned how in an in a, uh, era of stagnation, people get nasty. Yeah, yeah. What I'm worried about here in year nine of our economic expansion mm-hmm. and year nine yeah. of a stock market boom um and all Do we still have a stock market boom? Yeah, that's uh, just yeah. it. We, we might be at the end <laughs> yeah. of both of those things. March, uh, I, I keep saying it, but March 1st at 12.30 p.m. is when Trump uh, ambled out on the White House and said, yeah, we're going to have a trade war. And uh, the uh, Dow Jones was 24,950. And basically since then, it's just been bobbing up and down, but it's real close to that, mm. like nonstop. It's been flat, but also crazy uh, since that moment that he did that because trade wars are not good and not easy to win. So it's not hard to imagine here and elsewhere, um, but maybe even especially here, um, there to not just be stagnation, but like things to go south. And so my question to you, presumably in your paper and also in your book, you have studied what happens to populists when they inevitably fail and the economy doesn't just not succeed, it starts to go bad. What do they do now? What happens oh. to the country then? Well, so I so first of all, there's a lot of countries in which populists haven't won yet, mm-hmm. right? And so if people in France are really pissed off with their uh, economic stagnation, the sense that they don't have a great future, one of the really striking stats I've seen in the last couple of weeks is that 70, I think 69% of French people think the children's life is going to be worse and only 14% think it's going to be better. And I think that obviously has a lot to do with why the yellow vests are out in the street uh, just wanting to throw a wrench in things because they're like, you know what? We don't trust you guys. We don't have any particular ideas or demands. Um, We just want to break some shit because it can't get worse than it is right now, right? Um, uh, So if you think that's what's going on right now, then the idea that we might go through another deep recession is absolutely terrifying in terms of what we should expect to happen in Germany, France, the United Kingdom, and all of those other countries where populists aren't yet in power. Um, now, there is a great question about what happens to populism in the long run, right? Uh, and I was, uh, well, I had the honor, and I, I, I hate this term. I, feel like Amer- I love America. I've become American. I'm a U.S. citizen. I love America. But the one thing that I just sort of like, oh, it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's this turn of phrase that, that people say so easily. And mm. most of the time, it's so... Uh, Hokey, and people uh-huh. don't mean it. Uh-huh. But but it was a privilege to speak at a, at a president's lecture at Central European, Central European University a couple of months ago, and and it's basically being shut down. So it was one of you know the last talks before they uh, made the decision that they had to that they have to move out of Hungary. Huh. And I was trying to think: Can I tell this audience something that's optimistic because they're depressed enough as it is? Um, and I was thinking about the fact that that nearly all of the books in this genre that we're talking about. Um, mine includes included um, frame the discussion around a rejection of Francis Fukuyama's uh, famous essay about the end of history, hmm. right? So we had this idea that history has ended, that certain democracies are now safe, but we don't have to worry about them. And look, Fukuyama was wrong, right? 
Um, now, I think a lot of people make fun of Fukuyama because he haven't, they haven't read him. And to all listeners who know true. the phrase, the end of history, read the essay, which is like, you know, it'll take like 20 minutes to read and it's so much deeper than people think. But the basic argument it's saying is, to put it in my terms, those two concepts I've been talking about, individual liberty and collective self-determination, have an incredible hold on people once uh, they're no longer starving, once they're not scared of you know being shot to death and so on. That's really what motivates them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in one sense, I think Fukuyama has been shown to be wrong, which is that he assumed, to some extent at least, that when people have that, they really cherish it. They don't want to give it up. And that doesn't seem to be the case. I think people can start taking it for granted. Um, you know, when I hear a lot of people say today that the United States is the most unjust society ever in the history of the world, yes. I don't yeah. want to deny the ways in which America is an unjust society today, but that speaks of tremendous historical uh, ignorance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so a lot of people, I think, can look at what we have and take it for granted and vote for people who are liable to destroy it. What we haven't yet seen, though, is whether people in the long run are willing to put up with a regime that really tramples on those things. Are they willing to put up a, a regi- with a regime where you have less and less freedom, uh, where you have less and less self-determination, and where, by the way, populists end up, and this is true in virtually every country, uh, uh, being incredibly corrupt, much more corrupt than the people who came before them, uh, and then in the long run having really bad economic management. I mean, Venezuela is the most extreme case, uh, but Turkey, Russia, all of those places run by populists. Um, they can do well for a couple of years, but after 10, 15 when mismanagement comes to shine through and it becomes an economic disaster. And so my hope in that lecture was, you know what, in the long run, people are going to get pissed off with not having individual freedom and not having collective self-determination and having these corrupt people there and having the economy tank. And at that point, hopefully they'll fight. I don't know that they will, but hopefully they'll fight to get some form of liberal democracy back. And so I think if we have a huge economic crash, you might get this weird inversion of who's in power where, you, you might see, uh, you know, the moderate governments in Germany and um, Sweden and so on come under tremendous pressure. And at the same time, you might see people like Orban in Hungary and Kaczynski in Poland and so on suddenly find it pretty difficult to hold on to power themselves. There's, there's something, I suppose there's something else, and we're sort of migrating, I think, back to domestic policy here. I mean, this is this week, uh, Michael Cohen, the president's uh, former Attorney, yeah, speaking of corruption, his current attorney yeah. um, is uh, he's facing three. He got three years, got a three-year sentence. Got three years at Otisville um, for a number of different charges, uh, which all are generally related to these payments that were made to a porn star and a Playboy model, uh, who the president had a relationship with. Um, I do have to say uh, that there, there. It's yet to be seen what will happen to Trump as a result of all of this. You know, Michael Cohen has received his sentence. There is something rather curious about the fact that, as I understand the sort of legal wrangling here, had the president paid the money himself and had Michael Cohen instructed Stormy Daniels to set up an LLC to receive the money, there would be no problem here. It would be completely That's legal. That's the absurdity of campaign Because the president can give as much money as he wants to himself to strengthen his campaign. The entire controversy here, the entire legal issue, so to speak, is a function of Michael Cohen's idiotic decision to pay the money himself and his actual crime of lying on his mortgage application in order to get a home equity loan that he could use to send this money, a rather paltry sum, 
to Stormy Daniels. But, um, but can we say that, 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 that it's a little bit more poetic justice than bad? And I'm not as much up in the details, but my understanding is that Michael Cohen had to pay Stormy Daniels because Donald Trump was too skint to do it. We don't know. But, but what I, I mean, yeah. what, if, if I remember right, Michael Cohen kept trying to get the money back from Trump and Trump kind of wasn't paying him back. So this is just like one of the 7,000 cons that Donald Trump has played on all of his contractors and even some of the people who work for him. And so in the end, he might end up in real trouble because he wanted to save a couple hundred thousand dollars or at least give Michael Cohen a hard time or something. Perhaps there's, that's not yeah, the case. There's also, a, yeah, uh, uh, although it's numerically small within the sentencing, it's a concurrent, I think, zero to two month sentence. Uh, it's for lying to Congress uh-huh. um, uh, under oath, uh, or I don't even know if it was under oath, but it was sort of, you can't lie to Congress. And in concert with unnamed members of the administration. Um, so that uh, if that those members become named uh, in, mm. in a way where there's evidence attached to it, that's beyond whatever Cohen would say, but there'd be some kind of documentary evidence because he's not going to ever be a witness at a trial because mm-hmm. uh, you don't bring people like that uh, to witness then. And it, it, especially if Trump's one of those people or one of his kids uh, is one of those people because it's the Trump organization on the, on the, on the business end of a lot of these uh suits and and uh, and filings out there um then it's different than just campaign finance and right. the campaign finance stuff uh to the extent that uh that uh we know about it and that I'm fluent in it there is a lot of effort put into masking it this way and coordinating it this way and that's and that's the uh, the claim i think some of it was heavy breathing from the southern district of new york in their in their um, sentencing memo talking about you know the importance of democracy of all campaign finance laws mm-hmm. to let us know what's going on and the truth and justice i'm American rolling system. my eyes dear listen uh, uh i roll my eyes reading that stuff and i'm uh, more sympathetic to um the prosecution in general in this case than i uh, normally am but uh but uh, the, there is a significant coordination aspect to it that is uh, implied by the evidence and the pleas so far um, that make according it— According to the prosecutors. According to the prosecutors, right. but also I think according to people's whose judgment I trust who understand the legal system a little bit um, in, uh, in discussing this. I think in, generally speaking, um, Mueller has or the uh, investigations surrounding Mueller because he's not part of all of them. Um, has tended to over-deliver and the Trump people have tended to under-deliver their various Nunez memos and what, you know, the struck emails are going to rip the lid off this one. And uh, I think the latest kind of uh, conspiracy that they're, or, or, or storyline that they're um, that they're hitting up is uh, about the way that Michael Flynn was originally uh, talked to by the FBI. Um, uh, those things have, have tended to fall apart. So I, I agree that, you know, if, if this is all a campaign finance thing and it was you could have LLC'd your way out of this thing, that will be a thin read. I mean, that but, that is the case. Well, no. But so I'm, far. That is, I, that is the case so far. But it could I'm be saying, that there but are I'm other charges, that, but I'm no, just saying I mean, he's lying, been charged and the other no, guys been, have been But lying to Congress well. is well, also a charge. And yeah. that's part of the thing. And there's and there's documentary stuff in there saying yeah. coordination and circulation within the White but, House. But I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm suggesting, and I, we went down a rabbit hole a bit. I, I was only highlighting that to highlight, I think, sort of the technical nature of the infraction. If you have a technical infraction no, and then but, you but lie that, to cover up no, the technical infraction, this is still the original offense, so to speak, if it boiled down to only being that, is a technical is it, infraction is it, is it, that you is could it, Is it that the infraction is technical? Uh-huh. 
or is it that there would have been a technical way to get around Viva Fraction? Oh, this is, I mean, right? this is so, quite, this is quite standard. Like setting up an LLC to receive money from no, someone right, is... But what, but the, I think the, the question A is, good attorney would give you that advice. Cost you about 200 bucks. No. <laughs> or less. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all of yeah. that. But in my mind, the question is, was the underlying thing they did completely morally and so and above board? And I mean, it's just because they sort yeah. of stupidly did it in the wrong way that suddenly we can go and prosecute them. That, that really would be troubling to me. Yeah. Or is it that what they were doing is really disgusting, which is that something was going on uh, which the public had a, some amount of right to know about, or at least that we don't want people who are going to be our presence to be able to pay people off um, in order to keep quiet about various allegations, uh, you know, using their private money. And there would have been a technical way to get out of that trap, and they were stupid enough not to use that way of getting out of it. Mm -hmm. um, but they are actually being punished for something which we do think is pretty troubling and morally wrong. Well, that, and and I, I think I tend to be more on that than yeah. the other interpretation. But I'm, I hear you. I, I, I'd say succinctly, there's, since there's no prohibition against paying people not to say bad things about you, you know, is it morally wrong? He's sleeping around on his pregnant wife. This is, I think that's sort of star. sufficiently egregious. I, I won't slut shame her. Um, you know, she's, she has a right to make a living however she likes. And if that, that makes her happy, more power to her. Not that you were slut shaming her. I just wanted to, to put that out there. I thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> but the reason I brought us down this road at all was because Donald Trump himself has the reason why so many of these books have been written. But I often worry about, and I've talked a lot about it here, um, the degree to which we make this about Trump in particular, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, both because I think, as you pointed out already, both left and right wing populists, there's a danger there. Um, and the danger is that they take us away from those fundamental liberal norms, uh, liberal values mm -hmm. that are so important. Um, but the other danger is that we tend to look in a rather Pollyanna-ish way back at previous administrations, that they were honest and that they were respectful. And I think one of the places where I also probably have some disagreement with you is when you talk about the fact that there's been this degradation in the level of trust that we have in government. Um, for me, on a lot of levels, it seems like a very good thing. It's not as though governments have always been traditionally transparent or honest. There are egregious lies that mm. have been told by previous administrations, all of them. Um, and in many cases, those egregious lies involve people getting dead. Lots of people, thousands of people in some cases. Um, it's hard for me to, to sort of stomach a circumstance where so many of the things that are currently bad are continuations of policy from previous administrations. Um, and the ways in which Donald Trump is uniquely bad oftentimes seem largely aesthetic to me. Mm. Um, and in some cases, it's sort of fear and trepidation about things that he might have done were he actually better at governance. Mm -hmm. And he's awful at it. Uh, he's been Thank terrible yeah. and completely ineffective at doing the things he really wants to do, sort of transgressing these norms mm -hmm. in a way that is explicit versus transgressing the norms in a way that's more subtle and more delicate and perhaps harder to perceive, but still has very serious implications mm -hmm. um, that perhaps are go ignored. The latter seems far more dangerous to me. And the possibility of exaggerating the awfulness of the current administration relative to those previous other administrations mm -hmm 
that's the thing that makes me the most concerned, hmm. like respected journalists and scholars and pundits who are, they're over-concerned, hmm. worries me a great deal. And I think that that has the ability to sort of amplify the misperception that is almost certainly going to occur among hmm. the populace. Yeah, so look, a few thoughts. The first is that um, one of the criticisms that I've sometimes gotten, a lot of people in, in, in the space have gotten, which I don't think is quite fair, is, uh, you know, you only complain about the populace because you thought everything before that was wonderful and great. Um, or, or or even deeper, uh, uh, sort of, you know, I don't, I think it's dangerous to criticize the populace because that implies that uh, everything was wonderful before. And I just don't think the one impl implies the other. As you're saying, um, we could only have gotten Donald Trump because there was a whole bunch of things were pretty wrong beforehand. And people lost trust in the government uh, in many ways for, for good reason over time. Um, and so that allowed a figure like Trump uh, to come about. Now, um, you know, is it better for people to destroy and attack these basic norms openly or covertly I don't know, perhaps open is better if it's to the same extent. Um, but but I would draw a distinction, and perhaps there we'll disagree, between the extent to which Trump is trying to destroy and attack those norms and the extent to which previous governments have done that. So I think previous administrations have done lots of things wrong. We can go through the catalog of it and so on and so forth. Um, but I also think that we did ex uh, respect some basic aspects of a political system, which, among other things, gave us the assurance that we can go and get rid of them again. Um, and I do think that if Trump was more effective, then the United States would be in real danger of going in the same direction as Venezuela and Hungary and so on has done. And that means that we don't have a mechanism for self-correction anymore. Right. And that to me f seems much worse. So it's not that Trump's crudeness and his, you know, it's not that that makes it worse. And that makes it harder to bear. It makes it right. a bit more disgusting. Um, but Orban is not crude, by the way. Uh -huh. Right. And he's not all that open about it. Right. Um, what's worrying about the populace is the extent to which they uh, deviate from those liberal norms and the extent to which if they succeed, they make it hard for us to fight to get those norms back. And that to me is quite different. Uh, um, much for was wrong with, with the Obama administration, even more for was wrong with the George W. Bush administration in my mind and so on. I mean, yeah, you might have a different view. I have that view. Um, uh, you know, I don't think that either of them put us in any real danger of no longer being able to vote them out of office and put a bunch of other people in who hopefully are going to do bad. So there's kind of an apples and oranges inevitably with this. And I think a lot of the frustration from uh, people who uh, argue uh, on it from uh, a more communist uh, point of view. <laughs> I like that. really should be it should a just, thing. It should be a thing. How uh, have I not yet earned an adjective? As, uh, you as know I, what? Unfortunately, you know. your, your name is very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Is, is, is it going to be Monkian? Is it going to be, you I know, think I think is good. Monkian, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would take yeah, that. Like it's a little harsh. Monkian's That's poetic, true. You know? Yeah, that's yeah, right. A little yeah. to it. Yeah. There's like, there's a body count issue. It's like... On one side, it's my norms. On the other other side, it's like you kind of invaded Iraq, um, and that was a bad thing, and it led to a lot of other bad things that we're still all, all uh, uh, living with. And people, I think, who whether that is as your issue or some other uh, plenty of other issues to uh, to chew on that the elites fucked up. The elites totally fucked up. Mm -hmm. um, I you if that's whatever that is if that is your issue you can get purple in the face mm. hearing the entire journalistic class class um uh 
clash over uh, the way that their norms have been introduced. Uh, and that's the most important thing in the world to them when you're like, my God, you've been ignoring my issue forever. You know, I was on uh, TV uh, today and I'm very happy to say that I said the word Yemen on uh, TV, mostly because it came up as a vote, which is uh, today, which is great. We're uh, taping this on a Thursday, but the Senate. Big deal. Yeah, the Senate voted to uh, to uh, not uh, approve support for Saudi Arabia and its Actually, war on Yemen to deauthorize uh, it, which is the first time the Senate has ever deauthorized a conflict which had not been a declared war. Right, and right. the House, of course, under Paul Ryan, didn't do that. Yes, they, they snuck it, it into yeah. a farm bill and got just enough Democratic votes to uh, to uh, squeak that one past. Uh, but maybe that'll change in uh, January. But anyways, people haven't talked about Yemen forever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you can see the Thad Russell vein people's necks just starting to throb a little bit when they hear yet again that Trump said, called the fake news the enemy of the people. And uh, all your journalist friends were saying, you know, thank God Time Magazine finally just, <laughs> <laughs> just really went out there yeah. uh, and said this. And you like, my, you, you people saying this have spent more time talking about Time Magazine's Man of the Year than you've talked about Yemen for four fucking years um you can see people's sense of proportion but there but i think that's an that it is an interesting distinction which is that there is a norms argument um that is theoretically worse because it it, it breaks your ability to fix it it's still a future yeah. it's still a future tense and uh, you know going back to one of the basic foundations of your book where there's a tension between liberalism and democracy, or, or you know, there's an interesting relationship. It's the individual rights in the system. It's the anti-majoritarian right. Supreme Court sense of rights mm-hmm. here that are thwarting the majority of the people. Thank God, in many contexts, including stuff that you and I would disagree right. on uh, here. Um, but that is, I mean, so Donald Trump can get around and say, like, I, we should ban, you know, burning a flag. It's like, fuck you. That that the horse left the barn 30 years ago. You're not putting it back in uh, because we have a pretty good counter-majoritarian institution here. So are you really worried? Are you really worried in the United States, this country, that you have come in here and exposed yourself to our terrible tax laws for the rest of your life, you idiot? Um, uh, you know, they're going to be looking at... Yeah, the, the secret is that he can also make a lot more money in the United States. So, yeah, you know, true. from a pure... Rational but do when you move when you move back to Europe, they're going to be inspecting every orifice for the rest of your life. So uh, good luck with that. But uh, are you are you actually worried looking gazing even at the way that the system has responded to Trump, which includes he's got criminal investigations in in every orifice and imagined orifices uh, <laughs> uh, here. Um, new one just dropped uh, a couple hours ago into his inauguration. A new, a new orifice? Oh, no, a new investigation. A new I need to drink yeah. more. Yeah. He's um, got <laughs> orifices in that hair. Um, uh, aren't we kind of, uh, isn't, uh, maybe the system's working right now. Yeah, well, look, I, I think right now it is. Look, a couple of points. So the first on the norms, um, I think there's a real problem with a, all of the words in this space are sort of the wrong words for various reasons. Hmm. I mean, norm sounds like manners and it sounds hmm. like, you know, we're all clutching our pearls because Trump is so unpleasant. And like, look, he's unpleasant, but I don't give a shit, right? Like, hmm. that's not the problem. But there are basic norms which are not in the sense of manners, which we need to avoid real bloodshed. I mean, I was talking this morning to a journalist in India who was telling me about three uh, 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 rationalists who are critics of uh, Hindu religion in general, I suppose, but particularly of a political form of it, of, of Hindutva, um, who were murdered recently. And uh, a government minister um, put a garland around one of the assassins to essentially praise him for doing this. 
right? So this is one of the kinds of that's a, that's a bad norms. Norm. Yeah, yeah, that was a norm that was broken, and that leads to that kind of stuff. Now, look, when Donald Trump breaks and weakens the basic norms, that elections are the way that we settle who gets to rule, right? When he raises doubts in one of the uh, debates in 2016 about whether he would accept the outcome of the election. And hmm. when he now is raising doubts about what he's going to do in 2020 if he loses, I care about that norm an awful lot because if that norm goes away, we're going to have civil war. So it's not the norm I worry about. It's the real bloodshed that can come down the line when we don't have norms to settle our political disputes. Right. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. the, the, the second thing about, um, about whether the system is working... Uh, yeah, I think for now the system is working relatively well. Um, part of that may be that the United States has a much longer democratic history than a lot of other countries of populists have ruled, that it's a much more affluent society, which therefore has a much more vibrant civil society, which isn't as reliant on the state for funding, um, and therefore can continue to exist better when it comes under pressure from the government. Part of it may be that we are a very federal country, and so instead of having one electoral commission, which can be taken over by the populist and his loyalists, loyalists you have thousands of electoral commissions around the country, basically. Um, uh, and so it's much harder to take control of all of them. So perhaps we just were naive to ever worry about this in the United States. Um, that would be really great. I, I'm not sure about that. I think there's something to uh -huh. all of those arguments. I think all of that makes it harder in the States. I don't think that's enough to say, let's not worry at all. I think there's two other factors. The first is that Trump has only been in power for two years. Two years into Recep Erdogan's rule in Turkey, go back and read what people were saying about him. They're like, he's democratizing the country. He's actually making the country work better. Two right. years uh, in, in Venezuela, it took from mm. 1999 until 2012 for Freedom House, which is the most respected organization measuring the extent to which countries are democratic, to downgrade the country in a significant way from mm. being a democracy. Well, today it is just a straight up fuggish dictatorship, Right. So it takes a while. Two years is not a long time. That's the second thing. I and mean, the third thing is, if it was a populist Olympics, Trump would not make medal rank. I mean, he's not good at this. Thank God. <laughs> but if you were, I think uh, all of this would look a little bit different potentially. And so that's why uh, I hope I'm not alarmist. I think there's good reasons why the United States has been working relatively well. Um, yeah. But if we get another figure like Trump, in the future, and he has the political talent of somebody like Viktor Orban rather than hmm. the political talent of somebody like Donald Trump, um, uh, I would still be concerned. Hearing you explain it like that reminds me of a phrase that I was um, using a bunch immediately after the election and during the campaign. It's not as bad as you think, but it's probably worse than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Your specific concern that's being articulated that we may lose this consensus that we have the shared belief that elections are how we settle these yeah, disputes. Yeah. And I don't worry about that. My worry is actually a bit more fundamental than that, mm -hmm. that there is a universe of things that government ought to be able to do and everything else, they should stay the hell out of it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because there's always mm. the possibility that it could turn tyrannical in some way. And that that can lead to this sort of progression of awful that you were talking about. It's essentially safeguarding against the much more fundamental concern. And it's the thing that I worry about when you have these respectable politicians mm. who are doing these awful things that have grave and meaningful consequences, whether or not it's always appreciated in the moment. Mm. Um, and it's, it's funny, I, the, 
one of the other things um, that you wrote about was the role of social media and conspiracy theory and the propagation of fake news, which is obviously a pretty significant topic. Um, I would have expected that to play more of a role in the Google hearings hmm. that we had earlier this week. Yeah. But Republicans Rather in Congress, than why does my iPhone? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the two things I love about these hearings in, in every single circumstance is it always gives us an opportunity to see just how little these people who are supposed to be making important decisions about important things know yeah, about yeah, yeah. these important things. They don't know anything. Um, and they're, they're way, way out of their depth. But two is like their inability to invent and fabricate things to be concerned about. Like when I search for Santorum, why is it that I keep getting things about <laughs> discharge? It's called an algorithm. Well, I mean, I think that this really actually has been a great uh, form of discussing the book. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've had so many damn conversations about the book and I think it, it tends to either be people who say, oh my God, yeah, you're right. Trump is a fascist. We're going to die tomorrow. And I have to sort of dial it back a little bit and say, well, I mean, he's terrible, but yeah. no. Um, uh, or it's sort of with a little bit of hostility of, you know, uh, you know, anybody who worries about this is just sort of an idiot. And I think your, your skepticism um, is serious, but, but also open to argument. I think we've had a really great conversation. I mean, I wonder whether sort of one thing to discuss that we've just got is this question of nationalism hmm. and the broader question that that goes with of what kind of identity we should build. Um, mm -hmm. That's a huge mm -hmm. question for America. It's a huge question for other countries as well. And it's one that I'm trying to answer. I mean, I know that um, on this podcast, you you criticize identity politics a bunch. And I think... Uh, <laughs> I, I, I that's, be, that's true. That's true. Usually true. not I, in those terms, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, the term is unhelpful, I think. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to a lot of that. I think we need to do a lot more thinking and a lot more arguing about what we want to put in its place, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, one vision is... Um, that there's no problem at all in the country, and I don't think that's quite convincing. I mean, the other vision is that uh, the problems of uh, racism and so on are so deep and so inherent that all you can do is to organize politics around those racial and group lines and, uh, you know, all politics, identity politics, and we're just always going to have these kinds of fights, and the best we can do is to cobble together a winning coalition and sort of lord it over the others. Um, and, and that doesn't seem very appealing to me either, and I just think there's not nearly enough reflection that all of us collectively in this space do about what's the alternative strategy. So I think I've been thinking a little bit about Thomas Kuhn, um, who wrote this great book about the structure of scientific revolutions. Mm -hmm. And what he says is that, um, you know, when there's a dominant paradigm and you start getting these sort of anomalous cases, there's all kinds of observations you start getting but can't really be explained by the paradigm, um, people tend to hold on to the paradigm for a very, very long time. In part because once people have a view, they don't really relinquish it and sort of old scientists have to die off and be replaced by new ones for sort of change to happen. But in part because, you know, if you have one way of understanding a phenomenon and you see it doesn't explain everything, but you can't just stop believing anything. You have to have some belief system. It's impossible not to believe anything. And so until you put out a parallel, uh, a competing paradigm, Mm -hmm. people are going to stick to it. And so I think for those people who are critical of various forms of identity politics and so on, we can keep pointing to the anonymous cases and say, look, you can't explain this and you can't explain that and this is silly and look at the students at Oberlin who are sort of complaining about sushi and let's have a laugh at them. Um, I think the real work we have to do if we want to hold the society together and actually make it better is to develop that, that, that competing paradigm. And I don't think we do enough of that. Mm -hmm. I think part of that, uh, the and this is the, you know, 
terrible Hayek libertarian in in me uh, buried <laughs> uh, deep down is that like you're not going to solve that problem by thinking about it. You know, um, like people are going to discover their own identities in their own ways. I think I think that the the maybe the more productive line of inquiry, if you're going down that line, and and it's something we've talked about here, is acknowledge that it's a thing. Just like acknowledging that the need for religion and the and the actuality of religion is a thing, so is nationalism. Don't govern as if it doesn't exist. And as if people who nurture these ideas and are, and can be, you know, uh, swayed by them are definitionally monsters. Um, it's a human thing. It's a big, thick one right in the middle of all of everything else. So now what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily let's get a new laboratory. Let's have a new project. Let's do a moonshot. Let's have a national greatness idea. Um, uh, but, but I think you're running two things together. I, I don't want to go toe to toe with you and your interpretation of Hayek because I'm sure you would win that particular. <laughs> no, no, you would. Uh, no, not hard. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm talking about Selma. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there, there we might uh, be more competitive. But um, the wait, I just lost the track. What I was going to say. Selma uh, Hayek, Hayek does that. Oh, oh, oh! You, yeah. you immediately, you immediately went in talking about Hayek to policy. Your assumption was. We need to figure out what the paradigm is, and then we have to put all these policies in place. Actually, kind of, the, kind of the I, opposite. The uh, that like uh, thinking about the paradigm is not a top-down th- uh, thing. That's 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 kind of the basic argument. And so, therefore, because because I, us in this room, even Camille, uh, would not be good brainstorming the new nationalism. Um, instead <laughs> of let the nationalisms happen, be aware of them, but instead... Well, but why can't we... I mean, this has got to be a transformation that happens societally and culturally. And why can't we be participants in that? Why can't we build a movement around that? Yeah. In the same way in which... I mean, I'm amazed by the extent to which Asian Americans has become a thing in the United States. We, we, uh, that sounds a little broad. What I mean is, you know, I, I, when I teach, I'm amazed by the extent to which uh, Chinese American kids and Indian American kids hang out together and have uh, a, a shared social realm within the college campus, hmm. uh, more so than, uh, from what I can tell from the outside, um, than, than, than they do with some other identity and affinity groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't really make much sense because Indian culture and Chinese culture is pretty different from each other, right? But we have created this social category of Asian Americans and it has actually had real impact in the world down to who hangs out with each other in college to some extent, I think. And How do so you feel about that, Camille? Maybe. Okay. But So in the same way, I think uh, uh, we need to engage in that debate and say, okay, what is our notion of how Americans can self-define and 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 what we have in common with each other and how we acknowledge the the groupishness of human nature, the ways that people always um seek each other out and self-segregate in certain ways, but in which we want them to have as much contact with each other as possible and 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 have a shared, perhaps it's a nationalism, perhaps it's something else, but a shared identity where they say, hey, I'm this and you know, you might not be, but we together are also American or, or or whatever it is, and I think having a, 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 a engaging in that debate doesn't, I think, uh, uh, violate the dictates of uh, uh, Selma Hayek. <laughs> well She's integral to that debate. Yeah, we can be clear. I don't know how to sell it, um, and I don't know how to put it succinctly. Um, I do feel like I've been advocating for something. I am a, a race abolitionist. I mean, I, the, the concept itself, I think, is inherently, it, it's thick with problems. Hmm. Um, 
it distorts our ability to perceive, invents new problems for us to imagine. We're discovering last night. Um, I snuck into this thing at a, a local public school. Um, it was a race, racial identity development for adolescents of all oh, races. Oh, you went? Yeah, I went. It's a bizarre circumstance where I'm in a room. It's like a PTA meeting. I sorted. So I'm on the school email list here. Well, I didn't know you. No one knew that. You're telling the story. Yeah, but it's fine. It's fine. Um, uh, and, I, <laughs> and Camille's daughter is... Just one. turned one and yeah. mine's 10 and we're, you know, we're going through all this, this middle school, uh, nightmare stuff. Um, and so I get all these emails and it's just like heart of Brooklyn emails about <laughs> the culture of the public school system here, all of which is designed to set Camille Foster's <laughs> <laughs> neck hair. Well, well what, it's, to what it's designed to do explicitly is to help us as a society allow adolescents to develop their racial identities in a positive way. And I was astonished by one thing and not at all surprised by the other. Um, I'll tell you what I wasn't surprised by. I was not at all surprised to be castigated um, and not so much castigated in the sense that people were throwing things at me. I mean, one woman very delicately called me an Uncle Tom. Please don't bury the lead. What did you say? I mean, you know the things that I said. I, I don't. I don't. I no, I mean, you have a sense of. I mean, you know, I know, you know what your I've been honestly, yes, I know, I I know where you come from, but I would like to know what issues were brought up. There, there were a great many things that were brought up. It's it's too <laughs> much. It's too much for me to unpack. But so you you really did engage them in multiple things. I mean, I wasn't a troublemaker. I'm not saying yeah, you were. No, she was up there. No. She was up there giving. She was up there giving a a. a, a a present giving a presentation it's all of the stuff that you expect society teaches minorities to internalize uh, contempt for self mm -hmm. the notion that i am congenitally disadvantaged as a consequence of my blackness and that people around me need to recognize that disadvantage and as a consequence account for their privilege um and there are all sorts of bizarre contradictions in a presentation like this. I mean, one of the contradictions is we, we want to fix this. We want to make it all right. And we want to get beyond race. They said that. Hmm. Also, the other contradiction is that all of our racial experiences are personal and individual. And the first question I asked and the one that made it very clear that I, I don't, I don't, I don't truck this nonsense um, is how is it possible to sustain the belief that all of our racial experiences are our own and for you to also essentialize my experience and mm. tell me that I am inherently disadvantaged? I won't get into their answer. I didn't find it satisfactory. I will say that there's something very heartening about a room full of people who are trying to be introspective mm -hmm. and are trying to understand complicated things and in a way have what might seem like a rather complicated sort of battery of solutions that they're trying to bring to bear where there is a hierarchy of racial awareness that white mm. people have to go through and that black people go through how much of your sort of self-loathing has been dealt with. It's like your thetan level. If you're a <laughs> fucking Scientologist, um, I think there's something about that. That's good. And I felt like the people in there were good people who wanted a good thing. Um, but what I couldn't get them to recognize was that there might be a problem with respect to overconcern, that there might be a point at which your 
interest in solving this problem and quite frankly, in framing the problem in these particular ways um, might actually be more of an encumbrance that you might actually be burdening kids with something that they don't need. I'm conditioning them to, and I use the example that I, I've used many times before, where you walk into the Gap store and someone talks to you and it's evidence that they're watching you closely so you don't steal, or they don't talk to you and it's evidence that they don't think you have any money to spend mm. and that's the reason. Did anyone find this convincing? No. In fact, the response to that was, I don't know why you're worried about the overconcern. This always happens. And it's inevitable that it will happen. And you need to be more worried about the fact that it's happening than that it's not happening. And when I explain it that way, it sounds as if I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to make the argument sound ridiculous. Now, that is the response that I got. In fact, the, the person who called me an Uncle Tom, really a house nigger, they I actually think, is, said that. is what, no, 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 she didn't. She was very, she was very sort of sophisticated about it. She said something along the lines of, there've always been oh. people like that. There have always been who, the ones who don't Tom understand. Who like, the, the one on the plantation. She actually, she actually said the 1% who, and I was like, oh. yeah, you're close. I'm almost the 1%, 0.01, but 1%. <laughs> so I, I got on this tangent because I don't know how to prescribe, you know, the, the, new, the new way for us to imagine ourselves in relation to one another mm-hmm. or to describe in a way that everyone will receive anyways. But there was, it's something that I, I remember from your book when you talk about injustice and identity um, and the, the rather inadequate response from the right, from mm. your standpoint, in terms of the way that they will say things like, I think it was uh, Justice Roberts who said, if we want to end discrimination in academics, then we should end discrimination. So no more preferential treatment for minorities mm. to, and he doesn't say this part, but the reason there would be preferential treatment is to redress past harms. And from your standpoint, there are these harms and there are these constructs that do give us systemic disadvantage or perpetuate historic disadvantages. Um, And I suppose another place where I find myself often having conversations is about how to talk about these the patterns of disadvantage that are are certainly related to historical circumstance in some way. Mm but are perpetuated through a variety of things, it's impossible to say are mm-hmm. merely historical. Is it better for us to yield the field to Black Lives Matter on issues of criminal justice so that we can only talk about these issues with respect to those disparities? Um, is it better to, to, to yield with respect to conversations about sentencing disparities um, between Blacks and Whites and to presume that those sentencing disparities are a function of racism. Are we actually making progress when we do that? And it's not obvious to me that we are. Mm. Um, And it's not obvious to me that we've actually resolved many of those disputes. I think the quality of the academic research supporting the prevailing consensus about the role of race in most of those areas is bad. And it's actually bad um, in many cases, Um, at least if not bad, it is it's not as good as I'd like it to be. And it's probably because of some of the things that you highlighted in the piece that you did about academic research. It's the fact that the, the teleology of the university, they're not sufficiently curious about the nature of these problems. Mm. 
and they are looking for particular outcomes and actually controlling for all the variables that you would need to in order to meaningfully determine whether or not a black person and a white person who show up in court with, quote unquote, the same circumstances. That that notion of sameness in a lab from a laboratory standpoint, this is actually very hard to achieve. Mm. In, in fact, I would say that it is fundamentally impossible to, to achieve. So um, just to be clear, um, as we're wrapping up this podcast, you're asking monologue. A I don't know what I'm saying. Incredibly complicated 10 part race question. <laughs> I'm just saying things I at this point. Nothing less. I actually, I actually think there's a lot of very good stuff in there. No, I, I absolutely agree. Okay, good. 100% agree. I don't Tremendous really value. It's just quite a thing to put to a person. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping out of it. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me, let me try and respond to some of those things. So. Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm no, so glad do. you're here, Yasha. This has been so fun. I, 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 I'm going to come just hang out here on Thursday nights or whatever, just sit in a corner and listen to you guys. Um, <laughs> Watch us devolve. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're not supposed to agree that readily. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a little bit more about this since, since since writing the book, and and I do think that there's sort of two positions which I both find unsatisfactory, right? And so the first position is broadly the Justice Roberts position, um, and it's if I'm generalizing a little bit to say, look, the founding fathers had all the right ideals. Um, obviously, reality didn't really. Uh, uh, agree with what uh, those ideals were. So we had slavery and we had Jim Crow and that was terrible. Mm -hmm. um, but thankfully we've overcome those things now, right? We no longer have um, formal legal discrimination against any racial groups in the United States. Um, and so there's no problem. There's nothing to worry about. Um, uh, let's talk about our universalist ideals and 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 forget about the existence of, of race and identity by and large, right? Um, I, I do think that that doesn't take seriously enough both the effects of, of historical injustice and some of the ways in which we do have ongoing discrimination. Um, and for all of the problems in academia, I think there's some uh, quiet um, thorough studies um, which, which show that. So one of the really uh, uh, absurd things in response to the Sokol hoax, um, uh, which was these sort of fake papers that mm -hmm, basically mm -hmm. showed a lot of problems in some of the fields in, in academia, was a bunch of academics saying, um, it's utterly unacceptable that they made uh, reviewers do work by having to read these fake papers, and that's deeply immoral. That is absurd <laughs> because one of the actually really serious findings in sociology, which I take seriously, mm -hmm. is based on manipulating CVs. So you take, so you, so you send out CVs, and one of them, you know, you pretend that somebody was the president of a black students association or whatever, and so it signals obviously that they're black. And one of them was like, you know, Irish American or whatever, and it turns out that people. Um, who have, you know, that line of a CV that indicates that they're black, do get called in for fewer interviews and so on. I take that seriously. I think that's serious work done by people with uh, uh, serious methodological standards. And so I think there's certainly some forms of discrimination that are going on. We need to understand better what exactly it is and how deep it is and whether well, that can explain everything. But that, I think, is something that, that I trust. Um, so that's why I don't think that sort of Justice Roberts line is quite enough. Okay, so the, the, the dominant counter-reaction to it right now is to say, well, look, so... You know, these, these damn founding fathers had all of these uh, uh, universalist ideals, but then we got slavery and then we got, uh, um, you know, segregation in the South. And now we've gotten rid of those things, but actually we still have all of this discrimination going on. There's still a racial gap, wealth gap and all of those things. So what does that show us? That shows us that these ideals were all hypocritical and wrong and mistaken and we should just throw them all out. 
all politics is identity politics. Let's just organize all of our society societies around groups, except that some groups are are good and legitimate, and uh, we should celebrate when we fight for their interests, and other groups are uh, not legitimately fighting for their interests, and so we have to make sure that we get the inevitable demographic majority and the coalition of minorities is going to rise and everything's going to be great. I don't buy that either. I don't buy that uh, because I think sometimes it has a caricatural view of what the nature of uh, historical disadvantage and discrimination is in our society. Um, I mostly don't buy that because I think it's a horrible vision of what the future is going to look like. Because even if you can build that inevitable demographic majority in which it's assumed that you, Camille, are definitely going to vote on one side of a coalition, and from what mm-hmm. I know about you, you're not likely to, um, we're assuming that 50 years from now, Asian Americans are definitely going to vote on the same side as Latinos and uh, African Americans. It's not clear to me that they will. We're assuming that people who are, you know, one quarter Latino are going to think of themselves as Latino, which doesn't seem likely to me, right? So there's all kinds of problems with that. But the deepest problem with it is that even if all of those empirical assumptions hold true, you're going to have a dwindling minority of 45 or 40% of white people who hate everything and who are deeply resentful. And society is organized along the lines of these mobilized identity groups. And that is a really sad vision of what America is going to be and become, and one with which I don't want to content myself. And so for me, I'm just starting to think about this generally, and I hope my next book is going to be about this. But hmm. for That'd me, the, the, the alternative, I think, is to acknowledge the importance of race and identity in our society in terms of structuring a lot of our social life, unfortunately, uh, a good bit of our economic opportunities at the moment and so on, and think about how we can alleviate that, um, but hold on to the universalism of our ideals. Hold on to the idea that in a good, in a just society, race and identity and so on, they're not going to disappear, but they're going to matter less than we do now. They're going to matter less in determining who you marry, who your friend is, what kind of work you do, where you live. Um, and so, uh, yes, we can't just, in a Justice Roberts way, pretend this stuff doesn't exist and we just, to get rid of discrimination, we just stop discriminating right now and everything is saved. I, I, I think that's naive. But we do want to get to a place where we don't have to do this stuff because genuinely in society, this stuff has started to matter less. And so how do we get there? I, I don't know. That's an incredibly tough question that I'm starting to think about as I'm writing this book. But, but that to me is the rudimentary outline of, of a society that I want to fight for. And, and I do think that that's effective. I think we give people that vision saying, hey, do you want a society in which is the mobilized 55% coalition of minorities, some are holding it together against the 45% of enraged, you know, Trumpists on steroids? Or do you want a society in which actually some of this stuff has become less salient, not because we're ignoring it, but because genuinely it started to matter less and shape people's opportunities less and shape people's identity less? I think we'll win that debate. I think I think the notion that I'm putting forward in, in, in a rudimentary way here is more appealing. I love a lot of that. The Judge Roberts' perspective, to put it in a more respectable light, if the perspective was that equality under the law is an aspirational goal that most people in human history have not enjoyed. And that ensuring that we are providing equality under the law without respect to race or creed or sexuality or whatever else, ensuring that we're providing that Mm -hmm. is, it isn't just a noble aim. Mm -hmm. It is for me, it, that's my lodestone. And that there are outcome disparities 
can't be my lodestone because while I have these particular policy outcomes that are important and valuable to me, the, the policy solutions that are necessary or the policy mechanisms that are necessary to achieve those outcomes, the distance between those things, the gulf is enormous. It's the, it's the war on poverty. It's Johnson assuring us that we will tackle this, we will bring all of our resources to bear, and we will address the causes of poverty and to not move the needle. The money was spent, and there were consequences. And some of those consequences were unintended and likely deepened some of the problems that they were trying to address. And I think being aware of the fact that there is a, a goal that is perhaps, it doesn't satisfy people in the same sort of spiritual way, but it does achieve an end that is immeasurably better than the, the, the status quo historically. Um, I think that is, it's respectable. And there's a respectable disagreement that can be had mm -hmm. between people who think, like like me, for example, um, to to own this and to take it out of sort of Justice Roberts' hands in the abstract, who think that the principal way to address the problems of mass incarceration is not to focus on the race of the people who are getting arrested, um, especially since in this particular context, the fastest growing segment of the prison population isn't black people, it's white people. Mm. And when we talk about like the new Jim Crow, for example, the the notion that drug laws were created in order to incarcerate black people, it's absurd when we actually look at the distribution of the prison population, the racial composition of the prison population, and the fact that the, the percentage of blacks in prison didn't explode after these drug laws were put into place. Mm. The drug laws were things that were asked for by black lawmakers. It, it confuses the issues when we're forced to consider them in that way and when we're forced to accept the, the consensus which I remember Radley um, Balco had um, as the title of a, a piece that he published in the Washington Post, which essentially just had a battery of studies, mm -hmm. all of which, for the most part, were pushing the sort of dominant consensus that the criminal justice system is fundamentally racist, is the, indisputably the, racist. The headline exactly is, there's overwhelming evidence that the criminal justice yeah. system is racist. Here's the proof. And for me... Like, you probably that, didn't write that headline. Well, maybe not. But for me, I am not interested in sort of the categorization per se. I'm interested in the, 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 the nature of the mm. thing and what is wrong and dysfunctional. And if what's wrong is that we have a drug war, then it seems asinine to me to talk about whether or not it's racist. Well, so, uh, I mean, I think, so, so let me uh, tackle the, the the easiest and least controversial uh, of the topics we've raised and talk about um, uh, uh, police shootings um, and, 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 and the racialist party there. Not, not controversial at all. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think that we can have our cake and eat it too in that particular case, which is to say that, you know, the the standard argument is that um, there's a hugely disproportionate number of black people who get shot at by the police. It's much higher. The, number, the, the share of black people who get killed by the police is much higher than the share in the population. Um, uh, and that this is a particular injustice. Um, the response to it from some people, I don't know if that would be your position, is to say, uh, well, but actually more white people get 
uh, shot dead than than black people. Um, and so, you know, it seems bizarre to just talk about the black people get shot dead. Um, you know, I actually think that we can talk about both of those things at the same time. I mean, to me, it's a scandal how many people get shot dead by the police in this country. Full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's I think closer it's to my a, position. I think it's a, it's a particular, I do think, and there perhaps we disagree, it is also particularly troubling that the number of black people who get shot dead appears to be really disproportionate and there's at least some preliminary evidence for it's complicated uh, that that may be down to uh, uh, different responses in similar situations. So that's that's not proven. Um, but that's very, very concerning. And I think there is something, given the history of the United States and so on, that's particularly troubling when that's the case. But at the same time, it's also troubling that there's a ton of white people who get shot dead by the police. And when we're thinking about how to make a political argument about this, and it's really important to me that we get police reform and that we get fewer people shot in this country, I just think that we can make both of those arguments. What I find interesting is that, you know, uh, one part of a coalition doesn't want to make the argument about white people because that somehow detracts uh, in their mind from the seriousness of a problem uh, of racial injustice. And then the other part uh, basically, things for people should go around shooting whoever they want. I mean, slightly, you know, slightly <laughs> it, caricaturing. It, it sounds and, like and, it sounds like that when they say blue lives matter in response. Yeah, like and so, the police and so, are being and, killed all of the time, which and is so absurd. I think, and so, so I think the argument is: look, I think there's there's good reason to fear and to believe that black people are at particular risk, and that is a huge injustice, and we have to make sure that that we remedy that. But by the way, a majority of the people who get killed by the police are white, and so if you are a, a white suburban parent. You shouldn't think, well, I don't really care because this is just about racial injustice towards black people. A, you should care because they're your fellow citizens and you should care about their well-being. But B, you should care because, you know what, your kid gets drunk one day and, you know, uh, uh, doesn't respond in the right way to the police or doesn't exactly follow instructions the exact way they're barked at uh, your teenager or whatever. He might wind up dead as well. So Mm -hmm. let's build a coalition here across these groups. Um, And I don't think that has to erase the fact that there may be particular racial injustice going on here. Um, but it also should go beyond that in order to build that coalition. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a the only challenge. And, and my own position is, mm-hmm. is probably closer to the sort of second thing that you, that you explained. I've talked a lot on this program about accountability as the fundamental issue here, mm-hmm. not whether it's black people or white people getting killed. Um, I do think that the prevailing perspective um, and the, the evidence doesn't necessarily support the conclusion that black people are killed in a way that is inexplicable but for racial discrimination. They're actually overrepresented in all crime statistics, including violent crime, and that the proportions when you look at who gets shot with respect to like police encounters, the number of police encounters, it's not so astonishing. Um, the, the difficulty is how freighted race issues are in this country. And once you insert them into the conversation, mm. it becomes the only thing you're talking about. Mm. And it creates a circumstance where Colin Kaepernick is taking a knee and he's being criticized by the governor of Wisconsin, who is also the person who passed the first law requiring independent investigations of all police involved shootings. Mm. The dispute that they're having is not fundamentally about criminal justice. It's about these competing epistemologies about the role of race in America and the 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 importance and centrality of national identity they they pollute 
the conversation about criminal justice reform and make it something else entirely. But perhaps the answer to that is, if you want to build a coalition, how can you build a coalition that entails people with different epistemologies? Mm -hmm. So I think that there's reasons for people who think that this is absolutely all about race to still want to work with uh, and convince white people that their kids might be in danger. And there's reasons for white people who are worried about their kids potentially getting shot by the police to work with people who are on the other side of that epistemological debate and say it's all about race. So, yeah. so actually, if you think about criminal justice rather than the race question, you can get people with different epistemologies to work together. Yeah. And, and perhaps that's the only solution. Yeah. My epistemology involves uh, having a drink at the bar. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. Instead of arguing about goddamn race statistics again. <laughs> you would say that, white privilege. Um, we should we should get out of here. Um, I have to say that I have been derelict in my duties with respect to thanking people for sending alcohol to us. The last several weeks that we've actually been in the studio and drinking, we've been drinking stuff that has been sent to us by wonderful, generous fans who I have not thanked by name. And today I'm drinking this apple pie uh, moonshine. We Just also have a bottle of jar. peach whiskey. There was a third bottle that arrived in the box, and I don't, I don't know your name. This is Rocky so Mountain peach flavored whiskey for, from for Brothers. Yeah, you sent three bottles of booze. I know that we had some correspondence, an either direct message or Facebook or something like that, but I couldn't find it, so I could thank you. I'm going to find your names. I'm going to thank you properly on a future episode of this podcast. Make it the next one. Um, I assure you, and I apologize for my inadequacy. I'm sorry. Congenital. It is congenital. It's a function of my uh, my pigmentation, obviously. I learned that on V-Dare. This is my homepage. <laughs> this is me with a frozen <laughs> smile on my face. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you for coming uh, to join us, Yasha. Yeah. It was so much fun. I hope so. It was. I'm sorry if it, if it went in a... <laughs> Unexpected direction. No, not at all. Generally, just just strange. I am. I'm usually sorry about things. I'm sorry to the people who were at that PTA meeting that I invaded yesterday. I'm so not sorry. I tried to be. I tried to be respectful. I'm sorry for the woman who tried to persuade me at the end that the Second Amendment and the Thirteenth Amendment were both created because of racism. Oh boy. Uh, I'm sorry that I that I led you to believe that I could be persuaded. I think that's it. Unless you've got anything. Yeah, any, uh, any, any apologies for you? I, I apologize formally for everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> that nice um, I, I love you all. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.